0: I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half as as Well, Well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like.
1: Explained half as well as you deserve.
0: Okay, episode 10. Um, We are here to discuss chapters
1: 6 through 11 of book 3.
0: So we started off with King of the Golden Hall and we went all the way through the Palantir.
1: Yeah, and reading through these, I realized I think this might be one of my favorite chunks of the book. I've read the chapter Helm's Deep and The Voice of Saruman more than I can count. Really? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I actually, I feel like I don't have tons to say about these chapters, but not for lack of enjoying them. I definitely Mm -hmm. enjoyed, you know, where we were at in the story. Um, There's just, I, I found fewer moments of, like, deep thought about what's happening to the characters and and stuff like that than in past.
1: Yeah, I'd say we're kind of like at this sort of in-between point. Um, We're not quite at like the battles of Gondor and stuff, but we're post the breaking of the Fellowship. So we're just sort of in this in-between where like the front of Rohan is taking kind of the center stage.
0: Right, absolutely. And we learn a lot more about Rohan and what's been going on. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's just go ahead and get right into it.
1: Yeah, the King of the Golden Hall throws us kind of right into it we have heard of Rohan and Theoden and all of them before but now suddenly in the last chapter Gandalf has totally redirected the story in the narrative to just be like hey go here yeah um here's the next challenge we face well of
0: course Gandalf's back <laughs> from from the last set of chapters and as always when Gandalf is around he is absolutely the de facto leader mm-hmm. of our main characters
1: Right. So he says, there's trouble brewing in Rohan. Theoden needs our help. So as they're going to the capital, Edoras, we hear a little bit about uh, the royal house of Rohan, the house of Aeorl. uh, Aeorl the Young, as we've heard. Mm -hmm. And so just to give a little background on the, the history of Rohan and these people, the Rohirrim, they came from the northern vales of the anduin river so actually closer to where like Bayorn is from oh, okay and like kind of north of the Karok area they have more in common with uh like we heard about the wood men that live around there also uh-huh. the men of dale these are kind of like the northern men east of the misty mountains gotcha and they were known for being horse people even a long long time ago The stewards of Gondor, after they came to power, after the passing of the last king, had made an alliance with them. And during a war with invaders from the east, the armies of Gondor were pinned down on this kind of peninsula near the Gladden River, uh, which flows into the Anduin River. And their faith in these northern men who, you know, the enemy of, like, my enemy is my friend. They didn't like the easterners either. Mm. They come down and from the north in this really epic ride, uh, and deliver the army of Gondor. So, as a token of friendship and alliance, the steward of Gondor seeds this land that was at the time called Calenarthon. I'm probably butchering that. Uh, it's renamed Rohan, and Gondor and Rohan are allies ever since.
0: So, were they like a nomadic horse? tribe
1: kind of yeah i think okay. so i don't think they had any like settlements really they were just sort of this uh nomadic tribe also i think tolkien drew a lot from viking peoples with them you know they're blonde yeah. they're like northern people they're all about singing songs of their epic tales and deeds one of the few instances even of dragons being slain in tolkien's world comes from one of these ancient ancestors of the Rohirrim. oh okay so one of the few dragons, along with Bard slaying Smaug, Turin slaying Glaurung, and Arndil slaying and the Black, there is uh, Fram who slew the Worm Scatha. Hmm. So that's just like an interesting little tidbit about their people. Okay, cool. But ever since Gondor and Rohan have been really pretty tight ever since this epic ride of the Rohirrim. So maybe keep that in mind as we're going forward with their people.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, so we we are introduced to Théoden, who is king. But before they're even able to set eyes on the king, they're stopped at the gate.
1: Yeah, and it's remarked how the courtesy of this hall has been sort of lessened. You know, they're not speaking in the common tongue. They're speaking in the Rohirrim's, like their own tongue. Right. Uh, So as to ward off any people who don't know their own tongue. Right. Anyone who's from outside, you're not welcome here.
0: And it's already been mentioned in... The last chapters that we read um, that Gandalf has sort of been, his name has been dirtied in the mind of the king uh, in recent weeks.
1: Yeah, he rolled up after being captured by Saruman and uh, they said, Yeah,
0: they
1: said, take any horse and just just get the hell out of here. We don't want you here. And he was like, Okay, uh, (laughs) let me take your best horse. Yeah. So, yeah, they're not too happy with Gandalf. And so here he comes returning with these three strange people. Um, And these are times when strangeness is not really rewarded. So they have to leave their weapons outside, which Aragorn isn't too happy about. No. I mean, he has the sword that literally cut the one ring from Sauron's <laughs> hand. Yeah. And he's being asked, like, it's just any other sword. And he's just like, no. no and then Gandalf kind of has to tell him, like, yeah you can you should put your pride aside for this moment and
0: yeah gandalf is the only one who who is able to bring his staff in mm-hmm. sort of under the guise that you know w- would he's you an old man deny an old man his his walking cane
1: pretty manipulative um,
0: yes, can <laughs> yeah <laughs> considering that gandalf of course is, has been reborn and is more powerful than ever
1: yeah i mean well there is like kind of this whole theme of like being courteous to guests and yeah. that is sort of like would you ever take an old man's staff right. away no that's
0: and, and gandalf basically says well if you're gonna make me go in without my staff you'll have to have theoden hobble himself out here yeah as another old man <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> um to demonstrate kind of the ridiculousness
1: but yeah so they go into the hall and they see theoden bent with age and you know worm tongue whispering in his ear And I think it's even mentioned in Unfinished Tales that there were actual physical poisons he was administering Mm. him, but really nothing more poisonous than just the counsel of Wormtongue. It seems like they're very against Saruman, but Wormtongue has counsel not to send their full force out to the front to guard like the king and his home.
0: Yeah, Grima Wormtongue's a very interesting character um, in a similar sense that when we first read about Gollum in The Hobbit, it's mm-hmm. like, whoa, we haven't encountered a character necessarily like this. Or if we have, we haven't seen sort of up close. Of course, we've we've been aware yeah. of other um, kind of lowly footmen of the evil in this world, mm-hmm. um, in Bree and stuff like that. We've come across them, but we've never really gotten to talk to those characters. Uh, Grima Wormtongue is, is very unique in his portrayal.
1: Yeah, and I love your uh, comparing him to Gollum. I think there there's a lot that can be read there. I think Wormtongue is to Saruman essentially what Gollum is to Sauron. Right. You know, he ser- he's in a sense a servant of this person, but also hates him. Yeah. And yeah, is ultimately... Absolutely. Wormtongue is the downfall of Saruman as Gollum is the downfall of Sauron.
0: And in very different ways too, you know, like Gollum, Gollum is nobody's diplomat, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, like he's a very different type of servant of evil. Sure. Um, whereas Wormtongue is, I mean, just as his name implies, you know, he is smooth and s- like slippery of tongue and is essentially keeping Theoden and his entire kingdom of Rohan under this spell of his influence
1: right gandalf rolls up and is basically like you should not be listening to this guy yeah you should listen to me <laughs> and you know he does a little bit of a uh, uh, maya magic he does that thing that he does sometimes where he seems to grow in size and there's like a great storm that comes and uh this immediately seems to have an effect on theoden and especially after they talk a little more privately we start to see theoden kind of come back to his former self, you know, he straightens out his back, you know, he's, Actually, like, I don't need this staff. And right. so we start to see this, like, oh, he looks short, almost like a dwarf. But then he stands tall and he's like, oh, he must have been in his youth very tall. Yeah. His eyes are, you know, at first kind of glazed over. But then they start to see the clearness return and his right. blue eyes. He's and...
0: basically detoxing magically.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I don't think it's as extreme as the movie's it. Right. It really is just, like, good counsel. And I think this is something that's really interesting, especially... We've already seen it a little bit, but it's getting from here on out. Tolkien really nails down how important council is. It's not so much like, who are the leaders of these nations? But who are they listening to? Yeah. That is really the power. And, you know, unfortunately, Thaden has put his faith in the wrong person. And now Gandalf is giving him a chance to, like, put your faith in me. (laughs) And essentially through that, the Valar. And... Hope returns to Theoden. He was starting to despair about the state of things. Well,
0: because what is the, you know, especially if Grima's not saying, oh yeah, let's join forces with Saruman. No. Like, that's not the conversation going on. He's still
1: playing both sides. So
0: so that counsel that Theoden's been receiving is basically like, let's hunker down and just like...
1: Let's guard our capital as opposed to ride out to war.
0: Right, which is like not a very hopeful way of dealing with anything. It, it, I mean, it you know what the end is going to be. Like, eventually they will be overwhelmed. The only thought is that maybe they will, like, ride it out, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it's it's so unlikely given what they actually know about the spread of Sauron's power. Yeah,
1: they just see no hope in riding out to war. And that's what Gandalf is coming to bring them is this sort of hope that, hey, he doesn't tell them all about the ring, but he tells Theoden enough to know that we have a plan in place. Right. And Sauron could be overthrown through this. And Theoden is starting to be like, oh, maybe I have totally discounted you. Right. And I should have been listening to you all along. I really, really love Theoden as a character. Because I I think it's a really rare thing to see. And I mean, we can see this in our daily life. When someone has started off down like a dark path, especially when they get older in age, they tend to double down more. Right. It's really rare that you see someone admit they were wrong and yeah. then do a 180 and try to make up for it. And this is Théoden's whole arc yeah, in Lord absolutely. of the Rings, which I think is very admirable. He's a guy who knows he's messed up by listening to Wormtongue and allowing Saruman's influence to take over his realm. And now he's just trying to do what's right. Right. And he seems to almost have sort of like this foreknowledge of his death. He, He's like, well, this is the war of all wars and... I'm going to ride out and uh, probably die because I'm an old man. Right. (laughs) But he's willing to make that um,
0: sacrifice. Um, And so at that point, they take Grima into custody (laughs) and free Eomir, who had been imprisoned um, seemingly for going against Grima, um, particularly when it comes to Eowyn, his sister.
1: Yeah, we definitely get the sense that something's been going on between Wormtongue and Eowyn. Yeah. And Aemir is obviously not happy about it.
0: I just want to give a little shout out to Eowyn, who's Aemir's sister, of course, niece to Théoden, or as it's written in the book, sister-daughter, which I think is a funny way of putting it. Um, She, I just want to say, like, when she first uh, has this moment with Aragorn, Uh, when they first arrive it's very noticeable right not only is eowyn like i don't know just like the third female character we've come across in (laughs) so many pages yeah um she's the only one who like really has this weird electric moment uh which is funny considering that aragorn's embroiled in this whole, like, true love situation with Arwin that completely happens off page until the appendix. Um, yeah. Which I, I'll talk about that more once we get through those appendices and, and uh, you know, we can flesh out all of the actual information that's in there. But I personally take issue with that. <laughs> yeah, you um, just wish
1: that was more in the story.
0: Well, or I just wish that whatever we heard about Arwin in the story competed with this haughty, hot moment of Eowyn and, and Aragorn making eye contact and him thinking her fair and her kind of, like, turning on her heel and, like, leaving the hall very Yeah,
1: we really seriously. don't get much about Eowyn, even though so much of this is revolving around her, like... Yeah. Like, Wormtongue and Eomair's whole deal.
0: And she takes over the home place, like...
1: Yeah, well, I love that part, too, because Theoden's just like, well is riding with me so who else would you like there's no other male heirs and I love that the people are like a yeah we, we love it's very her. cool um yeah I think that's that's really great
0: um so she's she she's just a very powerful character even though she doesn't have any speaking roles in this first mm-hmm. introduction to her um she has a very clear presence and um I just think it stands out from everything else that we've read Mm -hmm. um you know definitely first of all again like i said she's a woman which is different for these That's books. That's quite different for <laughs> these books. Very different. Yeah. Um, but even of male characters, we've come into. We haven't had a male character stand silently, make eye contact with another character, have that main character think, "Wow, what a brilliant young man," and then have that male character like storm out very like seriously. You know that hasn't happened and.
1: Um, definitely a lot of romantic tension yeah there's like
0: tension in this scene and I you know of course I gag for it I just like absolutely love it it is totally my shit and like I can't believe there's not something competing with this from Arwen given that she is the love interest of Aragorn Right. but just wanted to make sure I got to that
1: (laughs) yeah definitely i'm gonna
0: i'm gonna suck any drop of romantic (laughs) tension from this very not so romantic story
1: give me that trashy romance i just need love triangle well
0: it's so close i mean we get so close to the type of shit that i read which is like this sort of like brave man and equally brave woman and she's like haughty and kind of a little like Like, I don't even want to deal with how I feel about this person. And he's kind of like, she's beautiful, but I don't know if I care enough. You know, I love that shit. That's, that's perfect. That's like every book I've ever read. So
1: ideally this is like what you want. Yeah. But it's presented in a way that you're like, I want more. That, that was way too subtle.
0: Well, it's like, I, here's the thing. If she were the love interest and the next books were going to build off of this like first introductory tension like a character just meeting eyes with another character and thinking them fair is like all you need to start and if it built up to something where you know that was the main love story oh my god mm-hmm. like chef's kiss fucking awesome but i know because i know because i know the story i know that this is just like a side thing that Aragorn is never really taking seriously, and Eowyn's really into him, and he's like, No, and that's it. That would all be fine. That would all be fine and good if I got that juice. If I could just get that juice from Arwen, I just need the juice.
1: Yeah, I will say, I do wish Arwen was more present in the yeah. Main story. Yeah, <laughs> that's like... mainly what I'm, I'm okay. saying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, So there's a little discussion about what to do with Wormtongue after it's been revealed that he is treasonous. And um, I actually really enjoyed this part. Uh, Basically, Gandalf says to Theoden, like, if you want to kill him, like, you are well within your right to kill him. But my counsel is that you should let him go and see if he rides with you or if he runs off
1: gandalf saying that here is this person who is deserving of death but i counsel that we should show them mercy and pity and let it play out and see how this goes right who who does that sound it
0: totally sounds like gollum who i think is a a, a good like i said comparison to Mm -hmm. grima this council is well received by theoden and he does just that and so they hook him up with a, a horse and let him go off he, of course, does not decide to to ride with them. Oh no, he's
1: going back to his master Saruman. Yeah. But all the rest of the forces decide to go aid the main war front in the Westfold along the River Aizen, where Theoden's own son, Theodred, had fallen in battle. This leads us to the next chapter, Helm's Deep, when they're all riding out and they encounter a scout who tells them that Saruman's army has broken through all their forces are scattered Gandalf decides then like uh, Helm's Deep is near y'all should go there and try to hold out while I go and try to see what's going on and see if I can gather up all these forces right uh, the, the main lord of Westfold is this man called Erkenbrand and so no one knows where he is. And Gandalf's like, I'm going to go find him, find these forces, y'all go there. And so they're almost pretty much chased by Saruman's army up into Helm's Deep, which is really different from the movies where they go there days ahead of time to hunker down. Right. So now all our heroes are at Helm's Deep getting ready to fight this epic battle. And to, to give you a little background on Helm's Deep and the Hornburg, this place became very famous during the time of the King of Rohan known as Helm Hammerhand. Rohan was overrun with enemies. It was in the midst of this very long winter. So the King Helm had his people take refuge in what would later become known as Helm's Deep. And King Helm would, during this time to protect his people, as they were kind of starving during this great winter, would go out to all these enemy camps in the valley, and he would kill everyone with his bare hands. Oh my god. And take the goods back to his people and this is how he got the name helm hammerhand he because there was this legend in rohan that that if you carried no weapon no weapon can harm you he eventually was found one morning frozen outside the hornberg uh but he was uh he was standing erect his <laughs> knees were unbowed uh so he dies in this kind of very uh
0: legendary
1: legendary death exactly um and so yeah so Helm's Deep just kind of became known as this place that the people of Rohan could always survive there and they said that the spirit of Helm haunts the mountains and would come down and kill enemies and it's pretty awesome and so this is what also the there's an anime movie called War of the Rohirrim that is coming out oh um that's about okay King Helm Hammerhand and the origins of Helm's Deep so keep an eye out for that but then we get into this really long, epic battle, the Battle of Helm's Deep. And what I really love about the story here is we've talked a lot about how, so far in the story, Tolkien really takes us through day by day by day. Even if nothing's really interesting happening in the journey, he will tell you what the weather was like that day. And, yeah, I, you know, and at any given time, any day is going to be, at most, a couple pages at least, like, a few sentences or a paragraph. Yeah. But now we have a whole chapter that is dedicated to an entire night. The story starts at sunset. It ends at sunrise. And so when we're kind of, like, locked in that pacing of the story, that's just, you know, day by day, let's keep going. And then it just slows down to show us this whole night. In the midst of the battle, when they're saying, like, this is a night as long as years. Um, When will the dawn come? And it's just, you feel that as the reader. Mm-hmm. It's just, this is a relentless, draining battle.
0: Yeah.
1: And the think, they've just been running around Rohan this right. whole time. They've, yeah. they've no. hardly had any sleep. Yeah. This has all been taking place over the course of like a week so far. And uh, now they have to fight this epic battle against thousands of orcs and Urukai and Dunlindings. And it's just pretty, Um, I think just draining. As the- and I think this chapter has a lot of great... Gimli moments um we've seen a lot of that before but here he's really um he saves Aragorn and Amir he helps block up the uh culvert with stone because he's a dwarf um when the orcs start to creep through there he is with Amair when they're driven apart and Gimli and Amir are driven into the caves whereas Aragorn and Legolas are kind of more up in like the castle part So we can see Gimli doing a lot of Deeds of Valor in this, Uh, and that's very important. We'll talk about that a little bit in the next chapter, but Gimli's association with this particular area. But we also see Legolas and Gimli have this fun little game over who can kill the most orcs, and they're always trying to one-up each other. And throughout most of it, it seems like Legolas is on top until the end. we find out that Gimli won by one orc. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I've always thought that was just pretty neat, but... Eventually, uh, with the dawn, comes Gandalf, who has found Erkenbrand, and he brings reinforcements. And at this time, Theoden and Aragorn ride out with all that's left of their people. And then at the end of the valley, there's suddenly a mysterious wood that's there. Um, And all the orcs are fleeing from all these new enemies and into the woods, and they're never heard from again. Uh, And as we know, these... uh, trees came from the Ents. right they were sent there and so it's a pretty glorious victory for the people of rohan
0: so after they've been victorious uh gandalf is basically like okay everyone time to go to isengard and they're like what the fuck are you talking about we just had like the longest toughest battle
1: we barely held off his army like we can't go fight another battle. like there's
0: no way and he's like well i'm going to isengard and i think we could see some strange things there Uh, Which I think is great.
1: (laughs) What a cryptic old bastard. I know. I know. It it almost pisses me off. Yeah, it's annoying. I'm like, Like, you can just tell them. Yeah. Isengard is overthrown.
0: But it's, I mean, they go with him.
1: Yeah. Well, I love how much Theoden trusts him. He's like, well, if you're going, I'm going. Like, I doubted you before and I was wrong to do that. So I'm going with you. Along the way on the road to Isengard, we get some great conversation between Legolas and Gimli. And we find out about what Gimli saw when he was driven back into the caves of Helm's Deep. This is Gimli's longest time he has ever talked. <laughs> uh, he normally speaks very short declarative statements, mm-hmm. but here he is again, just waxing poetic about the beauty of the uh, the caves of Aglarond, uh, the glittering caves, and how he's like, these men of Rohan call them caves, but th- I mean, this is a work of art. that mm. They're sitting on how to how is this not like the jewel of the Western world? Right, right. Legolas is like, I've never heard you talk like this before. Um,
0: (laughs) I've never heard you talk before. (laughs) Exactly. Like
1: literally uh, more than a few sentences at a time, Uh, except for when he was talking about dwarvish culture. And um, this is really, really important because after the War of the Ring gimli will become the lord of the glittering caves gotcha so we know balin led an expedition of the dwarves of to Moria, failed and they died um and we see that mirrored with gimli at the end of the lord of the rings he takes a following of dwarves to the glittering caves and there becomes like lord and so not only are you know we're seeing a lot of aragorn am and gimli interacting in these yeah. chapters And this is really foreshadowing, they're all essentially going to be kings in neighboring lands. And again, I I love how Am and Gimli's relationship starts (laughs) off so tense when he will literally be, like, essentially the king of Helm's Deep in Rohan. And, um,. So I've always really liked this part. I think, again, it just adds more dimension to Gimli and foreshadows his eventual fate after the war.
0: Well, and it, you know, even though, I mean, this is a weird word to use in this context, but it humanizes the whole situation um, where we're, we're getting to see their interpersonal relationships rather than just like fighters, you know, from all of yeah, these different Yeah, or it's these nations. epic alliances
1: yeah. of these mythological beings. Yeah, and... we get to
0: see like, oh yeah, they're like, buds or like oh you know they have a little disagreement about this like i i I, I love all of those details and it's
1: like yeah you know in the future they're going to be reminiscing about how they all bonded over the battle of helms deep that was when they first were really as allies kind of became friends yeah Um, um
0: at the beginning of us talking about this chapter you talked about kind of the pacing of how tolkien tells his stories and that he's always talking about daytime and where they're at and what what time of day it is, all of that kind of stuff. Um, Personally, for me as a reader, I have to say it really just kind of blows past me. Um, Yeah. I think that's a part of these books that you, as someone who has read them upwards of 20 times, (laughs) love that stuff because it's like, then you get to be like involved in this kind of historian approach to the story. Right. But I do think that is something... Um, I'm a little surprised that wasn't kind of abridged out of this publication.
1: Yeah, well, I think love is a strong word. I appreciate it. Um,
0: (laughs) I appreciate it, too. I I think it is cool. Like, as you've said, I think you've talked about this before, how you can kind of look across the, the breadth of the storytelling here and sort of say okay this is what was happening on march whatever and the weather was this way and oh look this is the same day and- yeah you can
1: look at like frodo and sam's journey in the east and their journeys in the west and right. kind of line it all up and i, I think that's very impressive and
0: impressive a- a- is a good word
1: ambitious of him to it's really very, tackle that it's
0: very ambitious it's, it's i don't know very, how necessary it, it is. is yeah for me personally it 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 kind of i can tell he's of course approaching this as like a historian of this world but let's be real that's more history than anyone has even on like what happened last week in modern times yeah. where we record everything yeah. um so it's a little all, it's a little intense for me as a reader
1: and let's be honest the hobbit is what put tolkien on the map sure and it got Along fine without that type Absolutely. of... He would just jump to the next relevant part in the journey. Well,
0: you know, there would be weeks that passed. He would say, like, they've been traveling yeah. for months, you know, and um The journey from the
1: Shire to Rivendell is, like, it's, it's literally by chapter three. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's...
0: Yeah. And I, I think that, like, for me, it's something that takes me out of it. It's very clear in those moments that... This is a guy translating his Silmarillion work into an epic and like unable to let go of his understanding of his map and his world.
1: Right. Yeah. I I think he could have benefited from editing it down a little bit more. <laughs> um
0: I mean, who I, are we saying? Like benefited? Like he he has you know, I, he's a wildly right. popular <laughs> yeah, author. True. But it's I, I think the narrative yeah. might have benefited. I mean
1: when I reread Lord of the Rings, it's I will try to do like a one hundred percent read through like once a year, but when I'm just lying around and feel like picking it up, I will totally skip around to just the next relevant yeah. part and not you know, sit to read that oh and Sam made a fire and Frodo went to fetch water. I would
0: call this all admin stuff, you know, yeah. it, it's as the administrator of the book It's good to keep track of those things. But for a reader, especially a first time reader, a lot of this information just flies through. Yeah. And I I think
1: that's really is what makes The Lord of the Rings a challenging book to read. So they come to Isengard and notice everything's, you know, not really how (laughs) it should be. Uh, Everything's flooded and ripped up and torn up. Everything's
0: pretty fucked up at this point.
1: And they meet two familiar faces. Oh, I love this part. I think this
0: is, again, just like seeing the interactions between Amir and Gimli. This is another part that is like so comedic that I'm just like, I I want more of this in the book. I I just, I don't even know if I want more. I just, I know I crave these little scenes where we're like uh, subjected to kind of the silliness of the people at play. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they, they see none other than Merry and Pippin yep. smoking and snoozing on the ruins of Isengard. <laughs> yeah. as
1: as hobbits do. Like, we, we heard before when they escaped, they're like, of course, hobbits just sat and ate on the edge of a battle. <laughs> yeah. And here they are on just the edge of the ruin of Isengard just yeah. smoking. And uh, I love it. It's, it's very in character for them. And so they've been sent there by Treebeard to greet the King of Rohan and his Thanes and all these other lords that are coming up. <laughs> yeah. Including their old friends. And I love Gimli's reaction, oh, too. He's yeah. like, I don't know exactly the quote, but he's torn between...
0: I'm so glad you're alive. Yeah. <laughs> and,
1: like, angry that, like, how lightly they're taking all this, like, after yeah. all they've been through. Oh,
0: absolutely.
1: And they're just like, well, oh, us? Yeah, we can take yeah. care of ourselves.
0: And, of course, you know, they're they're smoking. And, and even though they kind of recount this entire tale of how they ended up sitting there uh, preparing to welcome the king of rohan to isengard what they seem way more pumped about is the flotsam and jetsam that they've found long bottom leaf in you know they've yeah. they've just been searching for goods in the stuff that has been flooded out of isengard and they found long bottom leaf and that's what they've been smoking and that's that's like for them that's their focus of the whole <laughs> like epic that they recount
1: yeah so through this whole next chapter flotsam and jetsam they are recounting to the three hunters what was going on while they were hunting them. And uh, it picks up where the story left off with Mary and Pippin with the Ents going to Isengard. And we really see the Ents unleashed in their fury here. Yeah. It's pretty scary.
0: Yeah. it It's kind of a fraction of what we had seen before um, of them getting kind of riled up and, and singing their war beat song. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of intensifies from there and they are, A total force of nature. They.
1: This is um, the dam breaking. This is the bull charging. This is all those other metaphors they had. Absolutely, and it's kind of becoming unleashed.
0: And it's wild how strong they are. I think that's something that really stood out to me when the hobbits are recounting this. Is that they're. Fingers go through stone, crumble stone as if it were bread and, and all of these crazy things. Yeah, and well, I-, I
1: love that it just kind of highlights the strength of nature itself. Absolutely. Even, you know, without this, these magical beings. Right. They talk about how it's almost like years and years of what roots can do to, like, rock, but in a few split seconds. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it makes you just stop and think, like... Oh, wow. Nature is kind of scary.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just the only thing that keeps it at bay is its slowness Yeah, from us perceiving it, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it totally reminds me of... Uh, these woods
1: got hasty... Yeah,
0: exactly. Whew. It totally reminds me of time-lapse videos of, like, trees right. that walk, yeah. you know, um, that slowly are moving to, like, more viable soil and sunlit areas and they'll literally lift up their roots and walk it just takes a long time to do yeah um so yeah that's very very interesting mm-hmm. to me i think that is a, a natural um description that tolkien really encapsulates well with the ants. absolutely
1: and so yeah they pretty much all but destroy Isengard. or think is fairly untouched the tower in which saruman lives but yeah, like you said, Merry and Pippin, they find this old long-bottom leaf. <laughs> and they're, and I think this is a very interesting uh, and, and a very important part. Yeah. Because they're like, how did this get here?
0: Right. And
1: Aragorn is like, I think there's more to this. He's
0: like, let's put a pin in it for right now, but like right. we need to think about this. And
1: think back to when Sam looked in Galadriel's mirror. He was like, back in the Shire, something's going on. Uh, right. So the whole deal with this is... There's been this professional rivalry between Saruman and Gandalf. Saruman's the head of the council, but he's always begrudged how much people seem to respect Gandalf. Um, Gandalf was given the Ring of Fire by the Elf Lord Círdan of the Havens. And he was like, why not me? I'm the head of the council. And so, And he's also like, I know the most about the Rings of Power, so why would you not give it to me? And so over the years, as they've kind of had these white council meetings... Uh, sometimes Gandalf would go to them and really talk up the hobbits in the Shire and their uh, smoking of uh, tobacco. And, and really, like he's like, you guys got to try this. This is awesome. These little people, <laughs> they're onto something here. And Saruman's like, can you please try to be professional? But secretly, he's like, what is the... surely Gandalf's up to something here. Right. Trying to find the connection between him and the Shire. So he starts to spy on him. And all this can be found in Unfinished Tales, by the way even goes to the Shire disguised as Gandalf, as we've kind of already seen before with right. like, the uh, the person by the, the wood who they thought was Gandalf or Saruman. And he actually, in secret, tries the Hobbit's Leaf and likes it so much, he starts to stockpile it and smoke it, but in secret, because he doesn't want to be mocked by Gandalf. <laughs> um, this reminds me so much of the SpongeBob episode where... <laughs> Uh, Squidward is, you know, denying that he likes Krabby Patties yeah. and, but secretly he's like, goes cra- once he tries it, he's like, goes crazy yeah. for it. And then SpongeBob's like, you like Krabby Patties, don't you, Squidward? <laughs> and Gandalf even finds out about this and he doesn't want to embarrass Saruman. He's like, let me, let him have that. I've always loved that little tidbit. However, though, this starts Saruman's, uh, influence in the Shire. He's sending people there to, you know, buy right. up land and- yeah. Uh, get the leaf and bring it down. And so, as we'll see by the end of the story, his influence has grown immensely since they've been gone. Almost, like, immediately after they left the Shire. Yeah. This has been going on. And this is what Sam was seeing in the mirror. And this will just be important. Later I
0: on. just have to say, I mean, I know this is all about tobacco. And, like, because <laughs> Tolkien was a, a a big pipe smoker. And that's, you know, was one of his hobbies or interests, I guess. Um, but it totally reminds me of weed and especially of like the whole like pipe, like they're trying to look for other pipes for everyone to share the long bottom leaf together. And then they're like, Oh, you know, pipe shared between friends. Like that's how we'll do it. And, uh, it's such a good, like weed stoner. Uh, this is one difference
1: from the books that the movies make that I totally approve of, (laughs) which is implying that, the, the weed or the leaf they're smoking is actual weed and yeah, not that, tobacco. Exactly.
0: like psychoactive in some way beyond, <laughs> exactly. beyond like nicotine. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I, I love <laughs> Marion Pippin as just the stoners.
0: Yeah, I think um, it's really funny. Especially when the reaction of the party is like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, uh, what happened here? And they're like, oh, finally you've arrived. We've been smoking. Just
1: <laughs> smoking a ball, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, I think it's really funny.
1: No, it's great. But then they decide to all go up and speak to Saruman. Gandalf feels there's something very important. We need to offer him kind of an out an to out, his yeah. betrayal.
0: Exactly. I loved this chapter this is probably
1: one of my favorite chapters i
0: think this chapter like really takes the cake for me because we have two wizards finally <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah
0: uh i mean other than gandalf recounting this but now we get to see saruman in action yeah
1: other than the flashback in council of elrond yeah this is the first time we're seeing saruman in the flesh
0: yeah the way his voice is described and the idea that when he's speaking to someone other than you it's easy to smile and laugh at what he's saying as as a ruse and and identify that he is creating an illusion and how stupid you must be to to yeah. undertake or to be taken in by that illusion. But when he's speaking directly to you, it's a whole other story and and you find yourself agreeing with him or or finding his voice fair and and being lulled into a sense of security with what he's right. saying, um, which again, like just a little. Um, Tie back into what we were talking about with Wormtongue, who is, of course, a servant of Saruman, spinning this web of illusion with his just really with his words.
1: Right. And well, and that's all he has left right now. Yeah. He is cornered. He is surrounded in a tower by enemies and a flood. Yeah. And the Ents. And he
0: knows it's done. His like big thing is done.
1: Yeah. And even then he's not willing to play ball though he's still being pretty stubborn and (laughs) he's trying
0: he like tries to appeal to each like big power in the group um and appeal to their ideas of right and wrong and and get in with them and and everyone kind of shakes it off pretty quickly um i mean they of course well well, there's
1: definitely an effort of will and um I think this is one of the more relevant chapters to uh, today. You know, we hear a lot about like fake news and uh, <laughs> media bias yeah. and all these things. And I don't know. I think this is a, just a great lesson in 101 on how propaganda works.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: how you combat that. Right. Um. You know, like you said, he's trying to manipulate each one. And it, like when that tactic doesn't work, he moves on to another one. And he does this in a way where it's like he's saying these things, but... Tolkien points out that he's saying it in a way that makes people think that oh the thought ar- arose from myself right,
0: right and
1: not from someone else right which is exactly. like if you're going to be do propaganda you want to make people think that
0: right you ask questions so that they answer them in the the yeah. result that you want them to believe yeah
1: because yeah. no one wants to admit that like oh I got all my thoughts from someone else
0: right <laughs> um
1: they're like you know this is how I really believe exactly. and it's like no that's what someone else wants you to believe right and. So I've always really liked this chapter, and I just think its applicability is just pretty... uh...
0: And this is actually something that later on Gandalf kind of says, like, oh, it's good. We kind of trapped him in this, like, going to each person. So it revealed to everyone in the group... Just this
1: huge rhetorical trap.
0: Yeah, this, like, falsehood of, Hmm. like, he'll say anything to get on the side of these people right you know? and once
1: everyone sees that and gandalf has exposed that he has no real power
0: and left. and theoden confronts him and is basically like absolutely not <laughs> oh, I, I
1: love theoden's rejection of yeah. saruman that's one of it's my very favorite good. parts because you think he's almost going to fall for it and then he's just like nope like you have slaughtered my people i'll have peace with you when you're you're hanging from the noose. Yeah. <laughs> that is when i'll have peace with yeah. you yeah so awesome But yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about here, given that this is really our first introduction to Saruman, I mean, like I said, in the flesh, I wonder sometimes if Tolkien meant to write Saruman as a unique character in his own right, or what I kind of think sometimes, in that we never really got to see Sauron's fall. We know he was once a servant of the Vala, the Earth deity, uh, Owlay, and then he eventually switched sides to Morgoth, the Dark Lord. And, but we never really see that because that happened before the elves even existed. Right. So, you know, all of these are histories as told by elves and men. So there's not a lot written about that and because maybe the Valar didn't share that information right. with the elves. But now here we have a wizard who was once a Maya of Aule who has rejected the Valar and is now taking up with the Dark Lord and saying that uh, this is the way the wind's blowing. We got to go with this guy. It's it's very reminiscent of Sauron. And so I almost think of Sa- Saruman less as a unique character and more of a literary device to just show us as the reader what Sauron was like.
0: Sure, sure.
1: At the end of the Silmarillion, the Valar send the chief of the Maiar, Aonwe, to combat Morgoth's forces. And after the battle, he confronts uh, Morgoth's servants, including Sauron. And gives him an opportunity to repent and to come back to face judgment, which he he does repent, but he refuses to face judgment. Aeon was like, well, I did what I could. Yeah. And Tolkien writes, I think it's in Unfinished Tales, he compares Gandalf the White to Aeonway. They said that to The War of Wrath, And the overthrow of Morgoth, the Valar sent Aenway, so they would send no lesser herald than Gandalf the White, another member of the Maiar, to the War of the Ring to combat Sauron. And so we also see this similar parlay with the Servant of the Dark Lord, of which he is surrounded by enemies, and his pride will not allow him to truly face up to the judgment. And much like Sauron, who kind of has these powers almost of Not of his voice, but of looks. Over time, Sauron lost the ability to take the fair form, where his looks were kind of all for people, all on display for everyone to see. The wretched being he was, and same with Saruman and his voice. So it's almost like Sauron's looks and Saruman's voice—that's their powers almost.
0: Well, and something we've talked about off microphone is the fact that Oley. is the original master of both Sauron and Saruman. Yeah. Um, and Aule himself has this problem of creation <laughs> that he creates the dwarves before Iluvatar can even create and awaken the elves. Right. And he's like, you got to slow down, man. <laughs> you got to stop. And Aule, of course, is, you know, unlike his students, is prepared to destroy his creation. Yeah. And that's sort of his saving grace. Um, very Abrahamic.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely.
0: And, uh, but, and Aluvatar is like, no, you just have to wait and then they can awaken. And of course, you know, we've talked about Yavanna with the Ents as a response to Aole and the Dwarves. Right.
1: And then, well, I mean, the whole battle of Isengard with the Ents <sighs> yeah. versus Saruman is very, it's this marital dispute on a large scale.
0: Absolutely. Um, but I think it's very significant that both in this work and in the Silmarillion, with Feanor um, and Celebrimbor, there are these constant issues of, like, ego when it's attached to creation, which, of course, Owlay, being an earth god who's associated with fire and with um, smithing smithing and creation, um, it's pretty clear that Tolkien has this big theme where he's outlining not necessarily creation as a sin, but the this prideful um, over the,
1: the possessiveness, the of, possessiveness over
0: yeah. over over a creation.
1: Right. Yeah. And Alay is pretty in the clear as opposed right. to his all of his students. Whether yeah. that's Sauron, Saruman, Feanor, Galadriel the dwarves, like literally all these right. fallen peoples. Um, and that he, it said in the Silmarillion that he would create, but he wouldn't hoard anything. He gave freely of his creation. This reminds me a lot of Gimli mm-hmm. and Galadriel saying that I like foresee that you will have great wealth, but over you like, and, and you'll have a lot of gold, but over you gold shall have no dominion over you.
0: Well, and even just comparing that to the rest of the dwarves, uh, especially like Thorin in The Hobbit, the whole dragon sickness problem right. with the treasure, um, this sort of greed that that can happen, mm-hmm. um, that Gimli is, like you said, free of Somehow that. Somehow I mean
1: immune to. Honestly, it, there there are times when certain characters are compared to members of the Valar, and I really think there's no better person to compare to how Owlay actually is than Gimli Hmm. much like how I see Saruman almost as just a device to show us what Sauron was like I think Gimli just in general is to show us like day to day what Aule would probably be like right and I think it's very significant that Gimli is the only dwarf to ever sail to Valinor and likely meet Mm Owlay Gimli is a very remarkable dwarf he's not just like a dwarf he's kind of the ideal dwarf
0: well and along this line i just think about how he received three hairs from galadriel when that was denied feanor right who's like the most powerful creator of the elves of all time
1: exactly and even in this chapter um other than gandalf it seems like gimli is the only one that can really resist saruman's voice and i think that definitely has something to do with the kinship that they share that they both share with allay sure and saruman is kind of this fallen apprentice of Alley, whereas Gimli, like I said, lives true to what Alley believes and how he conducted himself.
0: As this exchange is happening, kind of the big um, punctuating moment is that Grima, who is up in the tower somewhere, tosses out this stone that narrowly misses Gandalf's head.
1: Right. This is going to prove to be a, a huge turning point, kind of for everybody. Uh, it would have been better for Saruman had this stayed with him. Sure. <laughs> uh, I love the part they said, oft evil will shall evil mar. And Gandalf says many times that is seen. And that going back to our Hobbit story, I, I really nailed that theme of evil is self-defeating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so
1: Wormtongue and malice against either Gandalf or Saruman throwing the stone has really put Saruman in a dangerous predicament because in the next chapter we find out that these stones are uh, a way of communication and that this is how Saruman was ensnared by Sauron's manipulation Right. and how he fell and how he's been communicating with him and now all Sauron knows is that Saruman had some great prize one of these halflings coming to him he doesn't know what happened, and now he's not answering his calls.
0: Right, exactly. So. Not good at all for Saruman.
1: <laughs> and Saruman was like trying to stay faithful to Sauron throughout this whole past chapter, right. and it's not going to do him any good. Yeah. This reminds me of Feanor's last stand. He fell with few friends about him.
0: Definitely. Um, yeah.
1: He kind of just turned everyone into his enemy. But this Palantir is a very, very interesting, important artifact.
0: It's picked up by. Pippin. Yes. When it falls, um, which later proves to be a problem. <laughs> but first, tell us more about the Palantir.
1: Right. So I would say these are artifacts that are almost on par with the One Ring and how they affect the story going forward. It reminds me a lot of how the One Ring was this massive oversight by the wise like Elrond and Gandalf that they didn't realize in kind of t- too late. And it's something that they really kind of beat themselves up over. Like, I should have thought about this. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the the Palantir were made by Feanor a long time ago in Valinor. They were a means of communicating. Uh, Each of the stones communicate with each other. And you can kind of see through time and space. And it's really kind of up to the person who's mastered the stone to kind of show what can be seen there. And they were gifted a long time ago from the elves of Valinor to the men of Numenor. Isildur and Elendil, his father, and Narion, his brother, had saved these stones from the sinking of the island of Numenor when they came to Middle-earth. And as they set up their kingdoms of Arnor in the north and Gondor in the south, they used these seven stones to communicate with each other, to hold the realms together. And they're all in different strategic locations. There were three in the south, one that was in Isildur's tower, one that was in his brother Anarion's tower, which later became Menas Tirith, and one that was in Osgiliath, which was at the time the capital of Gondor. Then in the north, there's uh, one at the capital of Arnor, which is north of the Shire. There is one that was at Weathertop, and there's one that's in the White Towers west of the Shire. Okay. And then the, there was another one that was at Orthanc, kind of right in the middle. The people of Arnor and Gondor kind of stopped using these once the Ringwraiths had taken over Isildur's tower, Minas Ithil. Because now Sauron has access to the Palantir and could potentially use it to, as we know, ensnare other people through his manipulation and showing them things that, you know, can really distort their mind. So we know that Sauron has fallen to this. And this is kind of really big news because a lot of them were lost back in the day, and that's why no one's really considered them, and so like right. so long. But there is one other one, and it's in Minas Tirith, which was of old, uh, the Tower of Ecthelion's brother. Gotcha. And so in this desperate time, when Gondor, you know, we know what lengths Boromir went to to try to um, to try to combat Mordor and Sauron, so. Now having found out about Saruman's fall, Gandalf's really worried about Dinothor. And if the leader of Gondor has fallen, that is huge. Right. So this is why once Pippin looks into the Palantir, they take off so suddenly. Sure. He's like, I can't believe I forgot this. There's one other one. And it's in the hands of potentially one of the most powerful political leaders leading the fighting in Sauron. Right. Pretty dire. However, there is a little bit of hope because there's a very interesting thing about these stones They answer to authority, to the people who have been given authority to use them. So like I said, long ago they were gifted to the men of Numenor. They were used by the kings. So the kings can master these stones, and as can their heirs. However, authority can also be given to the stewards, so that the stones will respond to the stewards' will. Now, Saruman is not of the men of Numenor. Even though he is this powerful Maya wizard, it's actually easier for Sauron to ensnare him than it would be to ensnare Denethor.
0: Sure. Yeah. Because,
1: again, he is like the legal ruler of right. Gondor. Yeah. Um, and it'll still take an enormous effort of will to master a stone against Sauron because Sauron is this one of the most powerful of the Maiar. He's a master manipulator. Um, he's
0: like dedicated himself completely.
1: To yeah. So even though Denethor has the right to use it, right. he might not have the willpower to withstand it. So in a really interesting moment, we do see Gandalf get down on his knees and gift this to Aragorn. This is Aragorn's birthright. Right. Um, but he counsels him not to use it.
0: Yeah. Cause it's not safe yet.
1: Right. Um,
0: simply Aragorn is the most trusted member of their party to hide it especially from pippin since we've already seen that pippin is weak to it though gandalf does mention that of course being a hobbit he's a little more hardy than other creatures absolutely
1: yeah this is another instance i think where we see the hobbits um resilience to evil
0: yeah absolutely especially compared to men Mm -hmm. i think i think of course that's what we're usually comparing them to
1: and i think it's also worth noting you know we don't ever see Sauron in the flesh. Yes. At all in a story that's named after him, the Lord of the Rings. But this moment is probably the most up close and personal we see Sauron. Um, we even get direct quotes from Pippin that he is saying that Sauron told him. Um and I've always found that very interesting and also a huge testament to just Pippin. He came face to face with Sauron.
0: Yeah, and um, he doesn't he doesn't reveal anything about what's going on with Frodo, where the location of the ring is at. Yeah. Like it, it's really amazing.
1: His his eye pierces him, but not as deeply as it would it with anybody yeah. else. Yeah, exactly. Um And also, yeah, the whole thing with Aragorn too is as far as Sauron knows, the Air of a doesn't exist or died long ago he doesn't know that there's still a living heir right it's something that's kind of been gnawing at him he's never had complete closure confirmation about like a long time ago the witch king killed the last king of gondor and he brought low the north kingdom of arnor but he never found out about the northern bloodline and gandalf is saying you know that might be our trump card. Let's hold on to that. Yeah. Don't reveal yourself yet. Do not use it. And then, like I said, he runs off to confront Denethor and see how he's been holding up. And if he's dared to use the stone.
0: And that brings us to the end of our section. Yep. Very exciting. So many things happened. I actually, you know, I said I didn't have a lot to say about these <laughs> chapters. Uh, I'm always wrong. So <laughs>
1: I can there's talk always about plenty I to say about Yeah, there's Tolkien. plenty to
0: talk about. Well, next week, we will be
1: entering
0: into book four.
1: For the second half of The Two Towers.
0: Starting with chapter one, The Taming of Smeagol, and going to chapter six, The Forbidden Pool. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, we're going to switch gears and go back in time and follow up with what our main protagonist (laughs) that we started the story with, Frodo, has been up to.
0: So much has happened. It's almost easy to forget entirely about the ring and its bearer right. and his gardener
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i i can definitely see why tolkien split these up into different books because they, they really are different books
0: yeah if you haven't already follow us on twitter at half as well pod
1: or you can check out our website at half as well where we have our reading schedule and our hall of fire blog there's some some interesting things there
0: <laughs> we'll have more interesting things soon uh william and i both work full-time so uh the blog has Uh, been hard to get to it's um, been
1: very neglected even
0: though william has plenty of blogs in his head um but if you like the times that he goes off and deep analysis and and referencing the silmarillion for things the blog is definitely something to check out in the coming weeks hopefully yeah (laughs) in the coming weeks i'm sage
1: and i'm william and this is half Half as as well. well